Welcome to another episode of Steve's Speed Shop, brought to you by Warranty Wise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by Minisport, specialising in the classic Mini since 1967. And we're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They sell Harley Davidsons, lots of them, and very lovely they are too. Find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. This week's guest is Edward Brown. He's probably the most featured guest we've had in the relatively long history of this show. Um, And there's a good reason for that. Ed is an enthusiast. His interests are wide-ranging. I mean, you've got to listen to this show. Speed Shop is often all over the place, but this one covers almost all the bases. Historic racing, uh, Formula One, current American motorsport, including open wheel and tin tops, although he draws the line at uh, trucks, I think. Um, And he doesn't like motorbikes. Apart from that... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> There's more or less everything in what I think is one of the best shows we've ever done. Uh, he's a mate, so I kind of would say that, but you tell me. You listen to this show and tell me it's not one of the best we've ever done. My guest this week on Speed Shop, my mate, Ed Brown. I know a chap um, in motorcycling who was in the RAF at the time, and he was one of the people... <laughs> when you think about it, it's like... He's telling you the story and you think... This is the way it used to be. So you're in the Australian desert testing Britain's nuclear deterrent. And they say, right, chaps, volunteers for, basically, volunteers for standing there while the nuclear bomb goes off. Some of you will be hind and wall. Some will be lying on the ground. And some will be just standing there. Volunteers for Group A. <laughs> yes, sir, I will stand yeah, behind yeah, a yeah, wall. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. Ian said, some blokes were just given goggles and told to stand in Group C because they wanted to monitor what had happened to people. Crazy, he said, so they it, just right? asked for volunteers. Right. Those volunteering to be in Group C, just standing there in goggles, will receive an extra gracia payment of five <laughs> of five pounds. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, like, right. it's like... Extra gracia, here you go. I'll do it, Governor. I'll do it, Governor. Yeah, no yeah. problem. And then, and then they wanted to prod them, like, and then go back six months later and stuff like that and sort of find out. And I said, did they really? He said, yeah, yeah. He said, and he said some people go were lying. on happened. But that's a very British thing, isn't it? Well, we needed to know. And we needed, yeah, yeah, well. and of course we didn't, um, they've got a Blue Streak missile at um, Hendon at the mm. RAF Museum. Okay. 70 times the force of Hiroshima. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you look at it yeah. and you think, holy shit, it's not that big. No. But that was how far, we've talked about this, that was how far technology had got in 15 yeah. years since the war. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing they've got, though, is a Grand Slam. And it's quite, which is the largest bomb ever dropped from a, it ever dropped. Okay. Um, and it's 10.5 metric tons. Right. And it was carried underneath a Lancaster. So a, a Lank, it was the only thing a Lank could carry. Obviously, it's 10.5 tons. Right. It's amazing that it got into the air with 10.5 ton bomb. And it's just a giant bomb, but the funny, there are very few things funny about a ten-ton bomb dropped from an aeroplane. But um, its shape, it looks like a bomb. You know, like if you were in a yeah, cartoon. Yeah, 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 right. Like Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bomb! Yeah, yeah. It's, and it said bomb on the side of it. It looks like that. And the other thing is, it was um, 
it was engineered and the, the concept was Barnes Wallace. And it was after the bouncing bomb. So you can just imagine him coming in and going, I've had an idea. And they're all going, Oh, it's the genius no, Barnes. It's yeah. the genius Barnes Wallace. <coughs> what is your genius idea, Mr. Barnes Wallace, sir? A bloody great big bomb, a massive bomb, a huge giant bomb. Yeah, but there's some sort of clever engineering principle in that. No, it's just massive. But but does it? No, it doesn't do anything except explode. It's ten and a half it's tons. Really big. Makes a th- it goes thirty meters down. Yeah, it, it's the force which the the whole point of it. It was it. It would go. It would just sink into Earth. Yeah, quite away. Yeah, and then go. The devastation would go out. It's just yeah, it radiates out. Yeah, yeah. But you you know you'd think. The sort of if you watch the Dumbusters, uh-huh. Michael Redgrave wasn't it plays Barnes Wallace? He did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course the testing was done at Lady Bower Reservoir just was. down here, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, just yeah. not not far from here. I tried to organise a ride out on the anniversary um, to go to Lady Bower Reservoir. I got two people wanting to come with me, and I thought. Have we forgotten our history? It certainly seems like it. It's funny because uh, when I was walking across the the main lawn at Goodwood uh, three weeks ago, and um, Roger Penske, you know, to me one of the most successful uh, team owners, he was uh, walking leaders. round with his entourage, it, and about was, one in ten absolutely. people actually recognised yeah, he, him. He had he had a member of the Goodwood security team with him, and his PA. And he was walking across the front lawn, and it such the extent that somebody stopped me and said, "Excuse me, I seem to sort of recognise that guy, but I don't know who he is." Uh, I said, "Well, that, to be honest, is one of the all-time heroes of our sport. That's Roger Penske." And it was like, "Oh, right." <laughs> and and yeah, where, where you go, you know, Formula oh, no. One, Formula One, IRL, NASCAR, IndyCar, now the new owner of Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and the Motor yeah. Speedway Group, uh, the largest one, of the largest race promoters in North America, um, and you go, and yet the fellas, you know, just walking past on the front lawn, and yet he has been one of the people that has shaped our sport over the last seven decades. I was at Donington Park, and I was in the happy position of being in the pits, having a chat with Jeff Duke. Legend. That word is overused. Yeah, yeah. Not when it applies to Jeff Duke. Yeah. A multiple world champion, the first modern motorcycle racer, the first guy to cross over from being a motorbike racer to being... A bit of a heartthrob and a personality, you know. Girls yeah. like sort of like coming to race meetings to get a glimpse of the sort of you know the black-haired one-piece leathers. The first guy in one-piece leathers. The first guy who sort of paid attention to his presentation, yeah. but was also you know an indomitable force on the track. Mm-hmm. A couple of people came over. Excuse me, are you Steve Perry? Uh, yeah, yeah. Can I have your autograph? Yeah, yeah, there you go. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Do you want a selfie? Yeah, bye. Anyway, Jeff, um, tell me about that time on the Jalera and blah, 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 and all this yeah, sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah. So, a um, couple more people come over. Uh, are, you, are you Steve Berry? Like, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, you know, I try and be nice, like, sort of took a picture. The third time it happened, I said to this bloke, do you know who this is? Do you know who this is? Stood next to me. This is Jeff Duke. And I said something else. 
said, this is Jeff Duke. Why are you asking for my autograph? And Jeff was so embarrassed. He was like, Steve, no, don't. And I said, no, mate. I said, come on, be fair. You're Jeff Duke. Like this, and he just started laughing. It's a great book, cracking book. And, and of course, the Lancastrian and proud, raced proudly with the, the Red Rose of Lancashire on his crash helmet. Yep. And like I say, you know, was the first was the first guy who sort of translated his motorcycle racing fame into kind of a prototype commercial Barry, marketability, right? A prototype Barry Sheen or Jack and Wagastini, or, or and it's funny because we're talking in less than a week since the retirement of Valentino Rossi. Yeah, absolutely. And people have asked me, not many people, but people have asked me about where I put him in the sort of pantheon of greats mm-hmm. of motorcycle racing. And I said, I put him with people like Pete Sampras in tennis and Larry Holmes in boxing. Roger Federer. And so they said, what do you mean? I said, a person whose career was blighted by a lack of decent opposition. Yeah. A person who never got to show their, their real greatness because, you know, I mean, you look at other areas in motorcycle racing. Oh, like, you know, I've used tennis and boxing there. Larry Holmes comes in at the end of one of the greatest eras in boxing. He comes in at the end of the careers of George Foreman, or Foreman came back, Frazier, Ali. You're coming in at the back end of that and you're kind of mopping up. The Pete Sampras era in tennis, why did he dominate? Because he's one of the all-time greats, mm, he's probably top ten or hovering around ten, but he was so dominant because he lacked opposition. And I think the problem for Valentino Rossi is that his incredible career hasn't been blessed with true rivals to match his talent, to match his ability. You know, you think about tennis now. Tennis is in a golden era now, and and it's about to end yep. because the three greats. Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic yep. have between them won in, an incredible number of championships. Have they dominated the sport globally? They've, they've utterly for, dominated the sport. Yeah, for the last 15, what, 20 years almost. Yes, exactly. But there's been three of them, yep. which is nuts. Three yep. of the all-time greats whose careers are completely parallel with each other, yep. who more or less start at the same time and are all about to finish their careers because they get into that age. And, and rightfully, there's a new a new breed of younger players coming through. Same for Valentino Rossi, I think. And, and one of the things that he's done, which I understand, I, I don't understand, I'm not saying that I understand what it's like to be a, a top-level motorcycle racer. I haven't got a clue. I've been near these guys. I don't, I don't know what goes inside their minds. I've interviewed them, I've asked them, I've spent time with them. I've tried to find out what motivates them, but there's stuff that we'll never understand with racers, with at, at the very highest level, what's going on in the head? He kind of outstayed his welcome, Rossi. You know, it's twelve years since he won the won the championship. I was going to say, isn't the true test of a champion is knowing when to quit? No, because Valentino Rossi loves motorcycle racing, I, and I, that's why I he that. would he would rather yeah. be racing at the back than, than not racing. Yeah, yeah. It's that. like and 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 again, he was. You know, let's mention somebody. For some reason, Miles Davis, the, the jazz great, popped into my head here. Okay. But the reason he often does pop into my head with a conversation like this is because he was interviewed once and said, um, I woke up one morning and realised I'd done my best work. I was 23 years old. Yeah. And he had, if we're honest. Um, Valentino Rossi had already climbed Mount Olympus. I was going to say, he was barely out of short trousers. 
He was still in short. He's still in short trousers. As I say, yeah, yeah. Well, do you remember when he, he at the British Grand Prix when he got up on the podium dressed as Robin Hood with a little bow and arrow and a little Robin Hood hat? Yeah. Because he'd been told that he was very close to Sherwood Forest, and so he thought that would be funny. But he was such a baby face anyway. Yeah. It made him look like a small child, and I think for some people it was almost as though he was. Some people thought he was mocking the sport, but I never did. I I just thought. There's somebody who just finds motorcycle racing a joy. And I think his career is proof of that. The fact that he stuck around for so long racing because he knew no greater joy in life than to race that motorbike. But when he almost got taken out by that flying bike Mm -hmm. um, not that many months ago, the number of times that I saw them slow-mo that backwards and forwards... That bike missed Valentino Rossi mm. by a couple of inches at most, and it would have killed him stone dead if it had struck Absolutely. him. Absolutely. Yeah. And so you think, wouldn't that have been terrible? At the end of one of the all time greats, not for me the greatest, um, since you asked, Ed, thank you, um, <laughs> Mike, Mike Elwood. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> it wasn't. A- my, my real thing was about thinking about, you had Jeff Duke, we also had Mike the Bike, and actually the... Jeff blazed the trail for the, Mike The Hillwood. distillation of that was yeah. Barry Sheen, right? There's a, there's a direct lineage from Jeff Duke, and, it, and the baton is passed from um, Jeff Duke to Mike Hellwood and then to Barry Sheen, forward slash Phil Reed. Phil Reed's the sort of... If it was the Beatles, Phil's the Ringo. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, the George, the uh, the Paul and the John are Hellwood and Sheen. Yeah. And uh, Jeff Duke's the George Harrison, i.e. the one that's got the real talent. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'll tell you what, there's a connection. Okay. Jo- George Harrison. <clears throat> yeah. What's the connection there with motorbike racing in George? Well, him and Barry Sheen were big mates, yeah. but um, did you know that he went to Brands Hatch to watch motorbike racing one day, George Harrison? He was, there's some great pictures of him. No, he's, he was remotely in Formula One as well, right? Because he's uh, his other big mate and neighbour in uh, Surrey, uh, Gordon Murray. Yeah, big mates with Gordon Murray. Yeah. And also, I think they shared the same tailor and the same barber. <laughs> they right, had that okay. sort of well Gordon Murray's always had that sort of off duty rock star look going on hasn't he yep. do you know what I mean yeah, yeah. hasn't he yeah. Yeah. it's amazing that he's operating at the level that he is Gordon Murray it's funny because you were talking about a couple of minutes ago where somebody's high point in their career was being 23 uh, i.e. Valentino Rossi give or take or Miles Davis or Miles Davis and yet actually you look at somebody now where uh, Gordon Murray, Professor Gordon's, Gordon Murray, who's in his mid-70s, is probably arguably at the zenith of all that he's done automotive-related over the last five decades. And yet people of a certain age will mem- remember him most as the designer of the McLaren uh, F1 which is GC now, and GTR. Which is now how old, that car? Um, for, nearly getting n- on nearly for... 20 years old. Wow. More. More than 20. More than 20. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yet, yeah, people uh, who are Formula One followers will go back and look at the uh, the ill-fated, because it was banned after one race, the Brabham fan yeah. car, yeah. 
um, you know, when it was uh, driven by John Watson and the late Nicky Lauder. Uh, and then, of course, that is, that's 40 years ago. So here's Gordon Murray, who's talking about uh, new technology, about harnessing activity for multiple manufacturers, as well as building their own car. Valentino Rossi could have gone to Ferrari. He, he tested more than anybody who's never actually got to drive the cars competitively. He was always there. I'd read Mike, Mike Scott, the um, Grand Prix journalist who's been doing that for a long time. I'm um, doing it very well for a long time. It's a, oh, Valentino Rossi spotted at Fiorano, again. Valentino again, yeah. all this yeah, sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah. And you think, yeah, this makes sense. Yeah. The Italians, because we don't get an idea of how popular... There are, there are some races whose popularity... Lewis Hamilton, for example. So Lewis Hamilton's popularity around the world is probably um, equal. In, what am I trying to say here in a, in a really awkward way? OK, I'll say it again, but obviously it's Lewis Hamilton, so there are concerns around Lewis Hamilton, and I don't really want to come down on one side or the other um, with the controversy. I'd like to avoid that, because everybody else talks about that. What I'm saying is this. Lewis Hamilton is a world star. Absolutely. Some people... It's like, I remember... Um, do you remember Paul Young, the singer, the gravelly-voiced singer? Yep. Right, OK. So, I, you know, I've been involved with radio sure. a lot over the last sort of 35 years, and somebody said to me... Uh, oh, yeah, Paul's coming in for interview and Zuccaro will be with him. And I was like, who the bloody hell's Zuccaro? So doesn't that mean sugar in Italian or yeah. something like that? And they went, Zuccaro is a massive star in Italy. He sells out the Milan Dome or what, you know, whatever right. it was. And I was like, really? And they went, oh, yeah, look him up. And I was like, bloody hell, this guy is, you know. it's it's. See, so my point being that some people... The fame is confined to their native land, isn't it? Yeah. And I think the reason that Valentino Rossi lived in London for so long was, well, two reasons. One, he could just live his life. Yep. And two, um, it's not Italy. You, 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 there comes a point where you're so famous in, in one place. Well, and hence, I suppose that the Gazzetta del Sport scenario is sort of, you know, because there's almost the, you know, the daily Ferrari column about what Maceo Bonotto is doing here and what they're not doing there and what they need to focus on with Sainz or Leclerc. Yes, and so, you've got to remember that Italy is a much more of a powered two-wheeler country than the UK. Yeah. It still is. It always yeah. has been and it still is. Yeah. So things like cycling. I mean, how frustrating must it be for those European nations where cycling is religion? that Britain is the world's dominant power when it comes to cycling. Because yeah. we're not that bothered about it. Yeah. It's really odd that we've become so... It's like, oh, did we win the Tour de France again? We, yeah. didn't, we didn't win it forever. Yeah. We hadn't won it ever. Yeah. Oh, Wiggle, Bradley Wiggins, Sir yeah. Brad. He goes and does it. And then Chris Froome won it half a dozen times, or how many times he and won yeah, it. It's funny, because, and, then, and yet you've got Thomas a scenario now yeah. where currently... In my little corner of Cheshire East, um, you've got the most successful husband and wife uh, Olympic duo of all time. Wow! Oh, Jason Kenny and his uh, and, and, Laura. and Laura Kenny. Yeah, yeah, yeah of yeah, course. Yeah. Well, with, the with the potential to add, because of their age profile and success, yet yeah. more. 
Well, obviously they're talking about knighthoods, but I think at Bolton University, and this show does have a connection with Bolton sure. University now because of uh, what they're doing there, the Motorsport Academy, and what Tony Keaton's doing with the revival of dot motorcycles and the other things that are going on there. Um, they've got the Jason Kenny building, and there's only really room for it to say Jason in huge letters. Nobody gets a knighthood. I'm not sure how they're going to tack Sir onto it. <laughs> You know, the Sir Jason Kenny. Just at the far end. Right? Yeah, they, they might have to sort of build out of it. They might have to put in an application to the council. Can we have an extension? Because we need to add Sir to the to the Jason Kenny building. But it's it's incredible to to think about the success that... I don't know, it's, it's funny. With sport at the moment, and, and particularly motor racing, it seems to be... It, motor racing seems to struggle to find its way into the hearts and minds of the British public because there are so many other things going on with sport. I'd agree. I mean, I remember um, getting annuals at Christmas and I'd get a motorsport annual, I'd get a football, in fact, soccer. By the way, people who mourn about Americans using soccer, soccer is a term of British invention and was used frequently... Uh, to distinguish between footballers played at rugby school, i.e. rugby football, and football played by the rules of the Football Association. I saw soccer being short for association. I've heard some, you see people on it, on on social media going, oh, bloody Americans, it's called football, not soccer. <laughs> we are the people who started calling it soccer. Anyway. Yeah, so it's, and I get the Blue Peter annual, obviously. So I get those three. So it was kind of, Motorsport had, I think, a more problem. When do you think that? When do you think that stopped being like that? I think it's difficult. I think um, post Hill or post post Mansell or post Hill. Post I was, was going to say. I was going to say post Mansell. <clears throat> I mean, I happened to be at the at British Grand Prix uh, three weeks ago, and it's the first time I'd been there. Uh, at the Grand Prix, supposed to be in at Silverstone. It's the first time I've been at the Grand Prix for almost probably three decades. Um, wow. And the roar that there was, um, you know, during the race to support not just Ma- not just uh, Hamilton, but Norris and Russell. Uh, and I think actually the only thing that I can compare that with is the day in 1981, so it was technically the 40th anniversary since John Watson won the British Grand Prix, and the noise, you know, people talk about a live music event mm. and the, you know, the passion, the enthusiasm, the roar, uh, and the probably the last time that I experienced that in a motor racing environment, apart from having been at the last round of the NASCAR Championship at Homestead in Florida about three, four years ago, was at the British Grand Prix the year John Watson won. And yet I'm told by people who went when Mansell Mania was at oh, his yeah. zenith yeah, yeah. that it was, that was uh, it was something else Probably entirely. something... Italian levels of enthusiasm. Yes. <laughs> but, well, I don't understand why that's, a, that's not a good thing. You know, I mean, if you, you, you think about what you see at Interlagos, uh, the Brazilian Grand Prix, whether it was... You know, um, Massa, PK, Barrichello, yeah. uh, or uh, you know, or the late Ayrton Senna. 
is that that sort of Latino passion just takes it to another level. So I don't understand why we should feel uncomfortable about not expressing that same degree of passion. Do you know they say started that in uh, four-wheel motor racing? Wolfgang von Tripps. Right, OK. And again, because he was a very good-looking gentleman. Mm. And the ladies used to, you know, it's kind of when you get to that, when it crosses over, not saying that Mansell was exactly... <laughs> Exactly a heartthrob, was he? He looked like a wagon driver from West Bromwich, which is sort of what he was, really. And for me, that's part of his greatness. And I, I, I don't think you can put Mansell up there. Watch a Mansell highlights reel, and then watch a Senna highlights reel. And the Mansell highlights reel is way more entertaining. The car's moving about a lot more. Very few people... Although very era. few people would take Ayrton Senna on directly, wheel to wheel, at 180 miles. Many times. 180 miles an Many hour. times, Nigel uh, Mansell. And Nigel Mansell is absolutely one of those people. I mean, obviously, you got the thing again back at Silverstone, going into Stowe, where um, Mansell goes down the inside of Piquet. Uh, and PK, by his own admission, said, no way, not a hope, he's never going to do that. And he goes straight down the inside of him. So having big cojones was never a problem never for, a problem. Uh, for Nigel Mansell. Well, it's like when you go to, you know, you mentioned Goodwood. We were both there, we were there together and, um, a few weeks ago. And you go down the, the sort of tat aisle where they say, <laughs> I'm sorry to say that, I don't say it any, it sounds disparaging, but I don't mean it. Um the, the places where they sell... The general interest marketplace. General interest marketplace. Thank you, Ed. Where they sell, like, posters and T-shirts and caps and all that crap. Uh, all that uh, stuff. And uh, there are two, the two people you see the most are A. Steve McQueen and B. James Hunt. Yes. Now, two things that I have a problem with. One, uh, Steve McQueen was, by some way, not the most significant motor racing actor. No, he wasn't. That's Paul Newman. Yeah. Paul Newman was far and away yeah. the most successful and the most uh, dedicated yeah. and the most long-serving. Second... James Garner. Jim Garner. Jim Garner yeah, was Jim very Garner. popular. Baja, uh, serious yep. competitor. Yeah. Yep. Um, Steve McQueen, I lo- you know, love the guy like everybody else, but please, 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 can I stop seeing... Racing his life, the re- doing the two-fingered salute, yep. sat on the Triumph, which was dressed up as a Zundap, which was actually a Triumph, so let's not get too much into that conversation, um, in The Great Escape. Yeah, Steve McQuaid, very good actor, yep. moderate success in motor racing, but no Paul Newman. No, no I mean, Paul if you look Newman. at Paul Newman's successes, uh, particularly in uh, IMSA GT, in the the seventies and the eighties, predominantly with Datsun, with Datsun, which, which as it was then called, brand. yeah, 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 um, and uh, had a had an awful lot of success. You come, you know, further forward. Uh, more recently, there'll be those that will be familiar with Patrick Dempsey, uh, who you know found his way into Porsche, what ten, twelve, fifteen years ago, uh, and has had an awful lot of success. And in fact, I think it's got to the stage mm. where. Um, the day job, i.e. acting, uh, pays to uh, keep the wheels turning. I can't see what Lamontine. I can't see what the appeal is with that Patrick Dempsey guy. I mean, he's probably quite good looking, you know. If you're, a, if that, if that's your thing, <laughs> it's just, it's just ridiculous. When you meet, this is this conversation is going to take a very strange turn. When you meet as a straight guy, um, you meet. Very, very handsome men. 
and then you see the reaction of other people to them, and it's a bit weird. Like, I went to the Master Race School at Misano with um, the Ralph Lauren underwear model, <laughs> Tyson Beckford. <laughs> and it was like, we'd go into a room full of people, we'd be just be chatting because he's just a biker. He's just a regular guy from New York City who happens to have been, I think, top ten when MTV did a countdown of the hundred most beautiful people who'd ever lived. Tyson was in the top ten. He's in the toxic video with Britney Spears. He's the guy in the Ducati. I don't know whether that was his bike, but he did tell me that when he got the first check from uh, the agency for doing the Ralph Lauren underwear advert, he bought CBR 600. He said the first thing I did was buy a CBR called a Hurricane in the US. He said, I rode down from Harlem to Times Square because somebody said There's the first unveil of the, of the agreed image is going to be Times Square. He said, and I got down to Times Square, and he said, I just slammed the brakes, and he said, Steve. And he says to me, there I was, 80 feet high, in my pants, <laughs> like this. And I said, and he said, and a cop said to me, you, move it. And I said, but that's me. And he went, yeah, right, move it. <laughs> but, of course, but of course it wasn't. But I spent three days with him, and we'd go into a room, and people would just shut up. You know, it was like it was like a sort of when Jack Palance walked into the saloon bar in an old cowboy movie. Everybody went quiet, and it was just because he just this God-given gift of beauty, and it just same with cars, isn't it? Certain cars, he said, bringing it back to cars mm. and getting it away from a very strange place that we've never really been to before on this program. I thought you were <laughs> going to start talking about Ralph Lauren at uh, Villa Desta because I happened to be there one year when Ralph Lauren. Had his Aerolith Bugatti, and we're talking about fashion, design, beautiful cars, uh, and the number of people that were, uh, male and female, I have to say, were completely intimidated by this uh, five-foot-seven, grey-haired, septuagenarian, very smartly-dressed gentleman that actually obviously turned out to be Ralph Lauren, who has been a car guy all his life, who has one of the world's best automotive car collections in uh, upstate New York. Uh, And I say men and women were intimidated by this guy because they obviously they knew that, you know, Ralph Lauren uh, was present at the event. Do you know who the person is that I've come... I've come across a lot of people, royalty, captains of industry, the person... Um, who has had that effect of just silencing the room, walking into the room and silencing the room, and rooms full of people who would be used to being the person that got paid attention to when they walked in a room, a room full of those people, guess who it is, I'll give you a clue, his initials are BE. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Bernie Eccleston silences a room full of alpha males like no other bloke who tips the scale at five foot three, is he, or something like that? I don't that. think he's even as tall as that nowadays. It was astonishing. It made me laugh out loud the effect that he had. He yeah. walked into the room and everyone just shut up and stopped talking. Bernie's here. Boom, silence. Really? Is he that powerful? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and today, I'll bet you there's absolutely no difference. They'd say, oh, yeah, well, it's not the same now. He's not running the show and all that. And I go, there's, I don't think, I think if you got those people together and the room that I'm talking about had uh, 100 of some of the biggest, mainly Brits, to be mm. honest, but then again, we still sort of dominate Formula One, don't we? 
in many ways. If you looked at the, the percentage of people employed by the Formula One circus, if you yeah. will, the entire yeah, yeah, organisation, yeah, the majority of them would be British, or a British, British educated at least. Yeah, I mean, I think it's obviously there's a new broom in the sense of um, you have people um, like sort of Toto Wolf, um, who is obviously a racer to the core, uh, Christian Horner raced as far as uh, as Formula 3 um, if you look at people who are not quite so prominent but nonetheless are highly respected for what they do people like Franz Tost uh, Otmar Schnatzner at, um, at Aston Martin um, then there's a lot of people in Formula 1 just like Bernie Eccleston who've been around collectors cars and motorsport for mm. a long time you look at Lawrence Stroll oh yeah um, you know Bernie Eccleston's nearly 90 and has got one of the world's foremost private Formula One single-seater car collections full stop uh, he's been adding to it he sells the odd one here or there because first and foremost 60 years ago Bernie Eccleston was a very successful Suffolk based car dealer so and before that, it's a motorbike deal. Absolutely. So it's a way of life to him, yeah. right? Um, but it's the only life he knows. Yeah, of course, absolutely. And somebody like that is not about to change. And but if you look up and down the pit lane, there's a lot of in the Formula One pit lane. Uh, there's a lot of people uh, that are like that. I mean, this weekend we were talking before is you know one of the big weekends of the year in the collector's car world, which is in uh, underway already in Monterey in California. And there will be several of those people, even on a weekend off or on a holiday, between the first and the second half of the F1 season, mm. who will be somewhere in California this week. Mm. It's funny, isn't it, how many people that are... No, it's not funny. It's predictable. It's obvious. Um, I was going to make the connection between the collector car world and Formula 1. You'd think they'd be worlds away. And you'd think that the last thing that people who were involved in Formula One would want to do on their valuable, their priceless weekend away from the the stress and the pressure is to uh, go to a racetrack well, <laughs> and watch a lot of old priceless 1960s racers um, duking it out. Well, Christian Horner, Martin Brundle, Danny Sullivan, Emmanuel Pirro... Tom Christensen. The list goes on and on, right? You know, so Why don't I even say that? There's just, I've said a lot of stupid things over so six, that, no, six no, years. So, that no, was one of the stupidest. So those, those, are, those are people that Emmanuel Perrault, F1 driver, steward, uh, four times Le Mans winner, uh, Tom Christensen, nine times Le Mans winner. You know, these are people for whom racing is it's ingrained. And then particularly with something like, you know, we were talking before about the upcoming Goodwood revival, thankfully, um, that they'll be playing their trade, uh, their skill uh, across the racing weekend. And they're there for fun. Mm. Uh, and these are people that have come in from far and wide. Stig Blomfquist. Stig Blomfquist raced last September, uh, was what WRC, uh, former World Rally champion in the mid-80s, uh, now in his early 70s, at Goodwood racing a 500-horsepower uh, Corvette Stingray uh, and a nearly 600-horsepower Ford Galaxy on a weekend off. It's what people do, right? It's a passion. And I think that's the really good thing, whether as in perhaps your world that you understand, you know, your Troy Courses, your Michael Dunlops, your um, John McGuinness, 
yes, absolutely, Goodwood is a world-class event, and yes, they want to be part of it, but also, fundamentally, they also want to be racing on two wheels. I don't know about bikes at Goodwood. Ooh, controversial statement. Right. I don't know if the car guys get it, to be honest. And I, I Explain. Well, I think I've always been someone who's been not as equally... Motorcycles will always come first for me. I love cars, but there's something about a motorcycle that's different. I've tried to explain it thus. Um, in my head, uh, a car's a carriage and a motorcycle's a horse. Yeah, OK. And you would... In the way that you would have, you would like your carriage, you would love your carriage, you would care for it. The relationship with the horse would be different. You know, the horseman, the chevalier, the, the, the cavalryman, the knight, whoever it was going back down the ages. The relationship with the horse. And a motorcycle is an iron horse. It's different. You need to be a biker to understand it, I think. Okay. But I think motorcycle, I think, oh, it's a dreadful thing to say. I've spent most of my career insisting that they go together. I don't know if motorbikes and cars do go together. I think it's two different crowds of people. Okay. Well, it's because I come across people like me so infrequently. Most of my friends are in two groups. You'll notice, um, you know, I'm kind of with the car people. A bike-loving, bike Alfa Romeo-owning, <laughs> Fiat. Uh... <laughs> there, there, there aren't many people I know who have the same. And most of my friends who are motorcyclists right. couldn't give a... Tinkers cuss about cars. Right, They're just okay. like, yeah, whatever, what is it? You know, they might have a nice car in terms of sort of they go and lease a, a new mm. Jag or an Audi yeah, or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. You know, they yeah, don't want yeah. to be driving around in rubbish, but they haven't no. got... They're not like me fiddling around with, like, 1970s Citroëns and trying to trying to, <laughs> trying to to get the, uh, the suspension system, which hasn't operated for 20 years, working and getting it back on the road and spending way more on body repairs than the thing will ever be in Worth. resale value. Mm. They aren't doing that. They're, they're in their world. It's the bike world. That's their enthusiasm. That's their passion. And I know that the car and bike combination comes out of uh, the Duke of Richmond's his enthusiasm yeah, for cars and absolutely. motorcycles. Yeah, he's a big-time biker. But we're rare beasts. Those of us that like both are rare beasts, mm -hmm. I think. Ugh, I hate saying this because I've tried to think that it's different most of my life and that, you know, people who love cars can be can be made to love motorcycles but i'm a car guy first and foremost yeah. but i can stand trackside at the goodwood revival the members meeting and look at phenomenal skill which to be frank frightens me uh because it's a danger but to them i think those people that are you know i was talking three weeks ago to john mcginnis and, you know, everybody knows about success that he's had on the Isle of Man and mm. elsewhere. Um, but, you know, since his accidents uh, and that we're pretty comparable in age and the way he's walking and you're going, you know, this you've had, you've damaged yourself a lot in order to give yourself that success. And I understand that in their world that that's worth the risk. I get that. But I just think that... The opportunity for people of bygone times, whether they're being bikers or racers, you know, your Freddie Spencers, your Kevin Schwantz, your Randy Mamolas, your Kenny Roberts, you know, people that I grew up watching um, on TV, that for them to sort of come together with uh, racers and drivers, you know, your Gerhard Berger, your Martin Brundles, 
um, Adrian Newey, people who are high profile in motorsport globally and actually still want to be part on a weekend off and of an event like uh, the Goodwood Revival or indeed in you know Monaco or whatever, um, I think that's only to be encouraged because mm. I think that's really important. I just think there's a, there's a bit of, oh, it's the bikes, let's go and get a burger. It's it's kind of it's I think it's a bit like that. I'd say what years years and years ago, years years and years ago, when everything was in black and white, it may have been so. Like Mister Chumley Warner again. Now. Yeah, well, it was that long ago. Now. It's got to be twenty odd years ago. I persuaded the organisers of the Motorsport Awards to put Carl Fogarty on the bill because right. Carl had just won his fourth World Superbike title, and they said, "What a great!" And they said, "Well, is there not a prize giving ceremony?" I said, "Yeah, it's in Italy." Nobody in Britain's going to see it, and you know, nobody's very few people from. I said, Let, you know, we're filming the event for the BBC, and we've got this world champion, multiple world champion, mm. and can we? Could they do something? And to the credit, they went, yeah, great idea. So uh, me and Carl went there together. <laughs> he, he lives just at the road in a much much larger house than me, but lives just at the, he well should, um, with what he achieved, and we went down together, and um, he was mobbed. He was mobbed by F1 drivers and, like, mm. legends, like, people going, Foggy, like this. It was mm. <laughs> They were following him into the gents. We went, <laughs> he went in the gents. I'd like... Uh, be better careful how much further you go with this now, right? Well, I seem to remember sort of two or three F1 drivers going, so, hey, Carl, do you think you could get me a ride on that for the Ducati earlier? Could you think we could we could all go... Can I come? You know, it was like a Johnny Herber. Can I come? Like all these people yeah, coming yeah. in. Go, oh, God, they're all crazy bikers. Mm. So maybe I am wrong. Maybe these... Uh, well, I interviewed Mario Andretti. Mm. Let's talk greats. Let's talk yep, all-time greats. Absolutely, rates. yeah. Mario Andretti. Definitely one of them. Absolutely. And uh, what's the connection between um, Giacomo Agostini and Mario Andretti? Pub quiz question. What's the connection between those two guys? Is it something about uh, same town in Italy or same region? Uh, it's or... it's not quite that, Ed. You'd okay. have, but that's an excellent guess. You'd have, you'd have to know. Both born in Italy in yeah. places that are no longer part of Italy. Okay, right, right. Uh, yeah, it's nearly there. It was it was a good guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I said to him, uh, so it's kind of first question. Um, who did you want to be when you were growing up, Mario? And he just straight away went. Kenny Roberts, except Kenny Roberts hadn't become Kenny Roberts mm. at the time. Right. And we just both started laughing. <laughs> and I said, really? And he went, oh, yeah, I wanted to be a motorbike racer from day one. He said, I still do. He said, I go to track days at Laguna Seeker. I've got a 600 uh, Kawasaki. And I was like, can you imagine that? You, like, turn up, you pay, like, oh, yeah, it's $130, sign on here. You're in the queue in front of this sort of quite handsome-looking, crop-haired, you know, Getting on, obviously got a bit of money, Italian-American guy. And you're thinking, uh, I recognise this guy. <laughs> you know, he's, just, he's on a track day. He's going to track days at Laguna Seca on his, on his Kawasaki 600. And I, I remember thinking at the time, I thought, I wonder why Mario Andretti's only got a Kawasaki 600. I thought, they've got a nice low seat, those Kawasaki. Because <laughs> he's, not, he's not the longest in the he's leg, not, is he? Absolutely. He's I not. was going to say that... Uh, there was a comment uh, that he made when he was interviewed uh, at Goodwood, what, three, four weeks ago, which uh, was saying there's not too many octogenarians that do a 200-mile-an-hour lap of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Wow. In a two-passenger two converted. 
IRL racer? Ed, who's the British Mario Andretti? Who's the person whose skill has straddled various disciplines of the of motor racing? I, th- I think it's difficult. I think there are people who have been really good at individual disciplines. Uh, I mean, I know Mansell. Man- Mansell obviously was run Champ Car as it was then, now IRL. Um, but I think we're, what we've struggled, if you go back in time, you know, oh, in yeah. the the 60s Jim was Clark, was, Clark yeah, yeah. Uh, was Moss, you know, Sterling Moss was Formula One, Formula Two, touring cars, GT cars, rally. Yeah, uh, but I think there's a period of time where that has actually sort of ebbed and flowed. And I think if you look around now, obviously people, you know, drivers are not encouraged to be part of that. Do you, remember, do you remember superstars on the telly? Are you old enough to remember that? Yeah? I thought I, I remember both superstars, and I thought you were going to mention was the end of season TV rally sprint. That was nuts. Yeah, the idea of people like of Nigel Mansell in Tony Pond's TR7 V8 blarting around the inside of uh, Donington that was filmed in the end of September but wasn't shown till the week before Christmas. The Superstars was a very strange um, British TV show. I think it was primetime, BBC One. Uh, it was presented by Ron Pickering. David Vine. <laughs> yeah, David, David Vine, Vine, yeah. And... Um, Basically, superstars from different areas of sport would compete against each other in a variety of events to prove who was the greatest of them all. Three things I remember. I said two, there are three. One, Brian Jacks, the judo guy, yep. doing dips on the parallel bars. Yep. Then you realised how fit you had to actually be to be an Olympic-level judo fighter. Um, because how else would you get famous if you were... A judo fighter, you know, in, in the, but he, Brian Jacks became famous because of superstars because he was so damn fit. Second, how unfit James Hunt was. I think James yeah, Hunt. Just... I think James Hunt. He was. He had a Marlboro on the go. Yeah. <laughs> he got the, He got on the parallel bars and his weedy arms wobbled for a few seconds, and then he was just like, "I'm done with this." And you just thought, "You've got to love that guy." And then my other memory was. Kevin Keegan, who at the time was European Footballer of the Year, so potentially the most valuable football player in Europe, having that hideous bicycle wreck in the bicycle race section and thinking, who let this happen? Who let the most valuable footballer in Europe get on a bicycle and go hell for leather? leather, And then he has this giant wreck. It could have ended his football career. But someone said... Yeah, that's a, that sounds like a good idea, which is just another reason why the 70s were better. Uh, fight me. Yeah, fight me. I've got Brian Jack stood behind me, my mate. Yeah, you yeah. can take it. He's probably 80 it's now, isn't he? Brian yeah, bend, you, <laughs> yeah. bend you in too. I mean, I think in motorsport, is, uh, uh, for me, I think the resurgence of um, Fernando Alonso back in Formula One, keen to race, Dakar has won Le Mans. Um, you know the idea to be to emulate one of his motorsport heroes. Go on, let me guess. Hold great... on. I was going to say Jackie Hicks. No, Graham say... Hill. Right. Um, but then again, you have got 
Because yeah, Jackie X Dakar numerous times. Yeah, absolutely. Plus Le Mans, plus yeah. F1. Yeah, yeah. yeah so when you ask who's like... who's the Belgian Mario Andretti, oh, it's a one-man race. But then you go the other way and you talk about Sebastian Loeb, right? So nine times world rally champion. But Sebastian Loeb is, you know, he's now part of the new uh, 2022 Pro Drive program that will race Dakar in um, in January. Uh, and those are people that they just want to race. You know, Sebastian Loeb, after he gave up WRC, went racing touring cars. He's done GT. He's won Pikes Peak uh, for Peugeot, an especially built car. There's all these people that are round and about that are... Um, perhaps you know they're still playing their trade they're well in their 40s they're very successful they're hugely versatile Romain Dumas is another one uh, Romain Dumas won Pikes Peak in the, the Volkswagen all-electric IDR fastest time ever at the peak wasn't absolutely. it absolutely yeah. uh, and you but you know one of my race heroes who I've grown up who again IndyCar uh, Sebring Daytona Formula One Champ Car Juan Pablo Montoya. Uh, and yet he's only the latest from an incarnation which theoretically in American auto racing goes as far back to the likes of uh, Lance. So Ruff. we've got the Spanish uh, yeah, the Mario Spanish. Andretti. Yeah, we've yeah. got the Belgian Mario Andretti. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We've got the Italian. Who's the Italian Mario Andretti? Mario Andretti. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't like to say, but as an adopted American, well, he's American. He's, really, he is absolutely. Yeah, but yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say is that you know there have been uh, there's been a, a group of people who stand out who have been phenomenally successful. Parnelli Jones uh, in the '60s, his, his racing contemporary uh, Dan Gurney. You know, you look at what the late Dan Gurney achieved in motorsport as a racer, an engineer, a constructor and a team owner, that his success is probably only eclipsed by uh, Roger Penske. It's funny, isn't it? Um, in the same way as some people think racing is art and there's a, there's a lot of creativity in racing, I think much more than, than people would give it benefit for. Um, because... I think the creative aspect of it, you were talking about Gordon Murray there and the fan car, that's the same inspiration that, you know, it's the 50th anniversary of All Things Must Pass, George Hamilton's... Uh, George Hamilton. George Hamilton. <laughs> not George... Not the permatan no, George yeah. Hamilton who played Evil Knievel in the, in the evil biopic. Yep. Uh, but George Harrison, um, the most talented of all the Beatles, and it's the 50th anniversary of his album All Things Which Pass, which generally people think of as one of the greatest um, albums in the history of rock music, because it is. Um, and it's that sort of inspiration that was the same inspiration that created that for me was visited on Gordon Murray. It's just that with Gordon Murray, it was expressed through engineering and not music. Yeah. It doesn't mean it wasn't creative. No, and that yeah. Because those are the people, that's where you get genius. They're incredibly talented journeymen, artisans, Absolutely. let's use the word for what it's properly yep. known, artisans, yeah, yeah. Yeah. people who do work, who do craft, who learn a skill, yeah. who assimilate knowledge and then can express all of that yeah. in a brilliantly prepared race car. But if you put a gun at their head and cock the trigger and said, mm. think of something like the fan car right now, yeah. 
they wouldn't be able to do it. No, I mean, you look at... Whereas Gordon Murray would go, okay, I've got half a dozen other ideas, try this one for size, and you'd be like, oh, my God, this guy's just... The the creativity, the creative brain is different to the methodical brain, the analytical, methodical brain. And, you know, this is when, when conversations start, as they frequently do, about... AI, artificial intelligence, mm. and they say, um, w- when, will, when will we arrive in an in a era where we have real artificial intelligence? And I heard Elon Musk, mm. let's bring it back to cars, mm. the head of Tesla, there, mm. car connection, yeah. Elon Musk, Tesla. But he was saying, not until, not until artificial intelligence can think of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or, you know, um, the Beatles' A Day in the Life or or Leonardo's The Last Supper, not until it can think to create something like that will we be able to credit artificial intelligence with the same powers that the human mind has had for thousands of years now. The stuff that created the pyramids, you know. Why do it? Artificial intelligence won't just do something. It won't just go, right, we're going to build these pyramids and then we're going to have this crazy sort of sphinx thing. What is that? Is it like a lion? Yeah, it's sort of like a lion. It's got a man's head and... Well, well, it's, look, there's the drawing, just do it, right? <laughs> Until artificial intelligence does that, or will it ever do that? And that's what, that's what we're saying, because you'd think that motor racing would have run out of steam. If you'd have been at the start of motor racing and you'd been sort of stood at the side of the road somewhere between Paris and Madrid or wherever where crazy people were yeah. <laughs> indulging in carnage on, on the open roads yeah, yeah, yeah. of Europe... And, uh, you know, a giant Benz or something like that. mile an hour in 1903. Unbelievable. Had gone roaring past you like it had come from the very bowels of Hades. You'd have thought, well, pretty soon this is going to be at the limit of what is is achieved. Because look look how it had gone, like you've said. The first first things that we'd recognise and call cars appeared on the roads... When? The middle of the 1890s or early 1890s? The oldest car I've ever been in was an 1897 Leon Bollet tricar. Okay. And I'm not sure if you'd call it a car. It's a trike, in fact. Well, it had very few of the characteristics of a motor car. And yet, if you get in like a 1903 Benz, it's a car. It's got a gear stick, it's got a steering wheel, it's got four wheels, it takes five people. You know, the Leon Bollet was like a sort of, I don't know, it was like a dog kennel with a chainsaw motor nailed to it it was didn't even have a carburetor right it was pre-carburetors right then you think well how did it evaporation mm. an open tray of petroleum distillate yeah you're thinking that's dangerous you're right to think that's <laughs> Absolutely. dangerous Absolutely. So, and yeah look at the technology how far it had gone so yeah, you, yeah. you then wonder yeah. okay let's go so you go back to then yeah it's 1903 yeah. you stood on that dusty road in the middle of france and that car thunders by going at 100 miles an hour yeah Literally. How would you imagine that a hundred years plus later mm. there would still be innovation? There would still be, no, we can go even faster. We can cover this distance from A to B even quicker. How? Well, the, I mean, if you use something we were talking about a couple of minutes ago, the Pikes Peak scenario, which is obviously um, in Colorado is one of the globe's foremost uh, hill climbs, which starts on uh, asphalt and finishes... Um, literally the race to the clouds 13 miles uh, and finishes on dirt um and volkswagen 
have been there. Bentley have been there uh, in the last 12 months. I was looking yeah. at uh, a car last Saturday at Silverstone, which was Bentley's answer to uh, Pike's Peak. Uh, and you just have a scenario where the idea of development, Volkswagen taking their IDR programme, which is all electric, 1,400 horsepower, uh, and the sheer talk that that has, and somebody with the talent of Romain Dubin mm. is able to do bottom to top and is actually to reduce the hill record by over one minute. Oh, wow. That's an eternity, it is. It isn't is. it? Yeah, and that was... And, and the person that held the record previously was Sebastian Loeb in a 900-horsepower Persian. Uh, and you go, this is somebody who then... So the idea for a man or woman to go uh, faster, smoother, uh, is limitless. Well, I was at the RAF Museum in Hendon on Sunday because I went to a motorbike event that was completely washed out by our insane British weather which may or may not be partially caused by the insane industry, which this city led the world in. This city yeah, of Manchester, absolutely. the world's first industrial city, yeah. was the first place that we started to burn vast amounts of fossil fuels, which may have led to our weather being so crazy that I go all the way to London for an event in the first weekend of August and it gets cancelled. So a very, very excellent alternative was provided by the RF Museum at Hendon. And anyone who's interested in engineering, history, technology, you've not been to the RF Museum, do yourself a favour. Go there, get this, it's free. It's free of charge. Although, as I did point out to my mate who kept saying that, he said, can you believe this is free? And I went, technically, all these aircraft, we paid for them, right? Yeah. We Tax paid payer. for all these, yeah, Tax except for those over there, the ones that say Heinkel, and yeah. I tell you what, one of the one of the most characterful. We're getting off topic, but it's it's the same sort of passion and it's machines, when, and people are into it. Um, the Stuka, the dive bomber, and and the and I only found out recently. I thought the noise was made just by the wings of the aeroplane, the shape of the wings. No, it was a blinking siren. Did you know that? They put a siren on the damn things to frighten people. The yeah. same way that we used to send pipers into battle, then the skill of the pipes had put the fear of God into wherever it was that we were that we were conquering as we created the largest empire the world's ever seen. <laughs> just thought I'd add that. <laughs> Might not have been a good thing, but it just happens to be a fact. It, it just irks me when people go on about other empires. They got especially the Discovery Channel. Genghis Khan created the King Alexander cried on the banks of the Bosphorus because there were no more nations to conquer. Well, look at our empire, mate. Absolutely. Get a map of the world from 1934, which I think is the one to have. Right. And look at all that pink. Look at all that germaline pink. That's us. That diddy little island at the top there in the yeah. middle. Guess why it's in the middle? Because we said it We said it was going to be in the middle. That's why. And having been at the annual Bentley Drivers Club, uh, race meeting at it was probably a bad thing but last maybe. Saturday and seeing the number of uh, WM pre-war Bentleys with the Union Jack on the passenger door many of which will have driven to that event on the road absolutely the majority of which will have driven to that event on yep. the road which is nuts yep. 100 year old cars driving in the fast lane of the highway on their way to the event it's crazy absolutely. no other marking no other marking motoring Bugatti no 
you know, Delahaye, Delange, Duesenberg, any other car mate beginning with D, Daimler, no. No, well, I think in, just in almost uh, about six weeks, um, in one of my... Oh, you're going to brag about the I've mileage ma- that ma- you've I've done managed, in your... Managed, your managed, managed nearly two, you shoe on in the internet. <laughs> managed nearly 2,000 miles in six weeks. That's fantastic, mate. In a 90-year-old car. I did some of those miles with you. Yeah, absolutely. 90-year-old car. Yeah. It's astonishing, it isn't, isn't it? Isn't that what it's about, right? Isn't that of course what it is, mate. Underpins yeah. all of us. Isn't that what we have a passion for? Well, I must go back. To, I'm, I'm going to come back to that, and, and, and it is significant, and I'm glad you shoe on it, and Ed. Think about that. 2,000 miles in a 90-year-old car in how long? In, in what? Six weeks. Um, and, and a majority of that, com- a lot of that competitive as yeah. well. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. But... Um, the point I was making was one of the exhibits at the excellent RAF Museum is the English Electric Lightning, our post-war jet fighter, yeah. which was for many... Hasn't Clarkson got one in his garden? Uh, I think at the front end of his garden. Yeah. I think it might be his ex-wife's garden now. Yeah, probably is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. all up to me, Jezza. They always get theirs. Um, <laughs> I think Jeremy's all right. He's got a bob or two. Yeah. Um, yeah, an English Electric Lightning. And we were looking at it, and I thought, wow, look at that. When that fighter, which was an amazing celebration of Britain's world-leading technology in the post-war period, it was twice as fast as the fighter it replaced. Its top speed was twice. How? In one go, in one giant leap, you've got a fighter that's twice as fast. And I was thinking, wow, has, has there ever in the history of um, moving machines, whether they be boats, you know, whether you say, when is Bad Kingdom Brunel went to sort of, you know, iron-bodied, steel-bodied uh, ships with, with engines instead of sails and all that sort of stuff, or when, I don't know, the, the genesis of the car and its development was seems to me way more way more gradual. You go to the RAF Museum and look at the aeroplane that immediately preceded the Lightning mm. and then look at the Lightning and you think, did we get visited by aliens? Yeah, yeah. Did like did we secretly sort of imprison them somewhere and go, right, give up your secrets, you lot? Because how did they do that? They built an aeroplane that was twice as fast as the... That'll never happen again. Will it? That leap forward like that. Things it's evolved. Chasm, it's a chasm, right? Uh, it wasn't so much sort of progressive as sort of literally a chasm yeah. between well, what yeah, had gone before. That's my point. Surely now, when it comes to technology and if it comes to cars, to bikes, to, mm. to planes, to trains, you know, we're lucky. We grew up in an era where all the all the things that moved yeah. seemed to be getting great. Yeah. Do you remember the tilting trains? Yeah. I remember watching yeah, that yeah. on the news yeah. and it was yeah, saying... Yeah. These are the new tilting trains, and they can they can they can get from Manchester to London in like an hour and fifty minutes or something like that. You're like, wow, look at that, that's amazing. Yeah. And then there was Concord, for goodness sake. Yes, I was you know, say, I, yeah. when I met my partner, um, and I, I um, we got together and I travelled to you know Vancouver, where she's from, and met her dad. The thing that I was most excited about was that he'd been a frequent flyer on Concord, yeah. and I just wanted to quiz him. I was yeah. like, yeah. Uh, "Hi, oh hi, lovely to meet you." Right, Concord. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how many how many times and where to and from? He got Concord had to wait for him and a couple of his colleagues. Right, it waited on the tarmac. He said, and he's not a boastful man at all. I had to prize this story out of him. He's Scottish, so he's taciturn. 
it keeps you know it keeps his powder dry but i had to hear that story and it was because of the way that business used to work and britain used to work and it doesn't work like that anymore and people might say oh well yeah that was the old boy club what it was he and a couple of other execs from the enormous british forward slash american mining company that he worked for were connecting from another flight and they had to be on that concord and so somebody at a very high level in that mining corporation made a phone call to somebody at a very high level in british airways and that damn Concorde, the plane. that damn Concorde waited on the tarmac, mate. Because right. that's what it used to be like, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, when the Johnny Allen Triumph arrived from Bonneville um, at Tilbury, it was delayed by customs, and Edward Turner rang like the minister of the minister of trade. Let me speak to the minister of trade. Hello, Edward Turner of Triumphs here. Why did they always pluralise things? They did, didn't they? Yeah. They always added a, they always added an S. Norton's Jaguars. Edward Turner of Jaguars, of, of Triumphs here. Could I, can I help you, Mr Turner? Yes, it's a very important that this motorcycle is at the BBC. Bumf, released. One phone call. Get that motorbike out of there right now. It has to go to the BBC. It's very important for our foreign exports. That's what Britain used to be like, and Britain's not like that anymore. And, and like I said, Ed, I think a lot of people say, well, good, because it used to be an all-boys club, and now the all-boys club's been broken up. You're saying that's a bad thing? And I'm, so, I'm saying, yeah, <laughs> it's a bad thing. I think the Stuff en- that's good for Britain yeah. should get a pass. Absolutely. I think the energy, the drive... For the, all of us. The energy, the drive, the passion, the creativity. Um, you know, I have several friends who are big um, Jaguar enthusiasts, um, E-Type onwards, um, and in some cases uh, owners of pre-war SS 100s, uh, great cars, very usable, very versatile, phenomenally well-engineered. And you look at where um, the UK was 70 years ago, immediately post-war, mm-hmm. and the rebuild process that was ongoing. And yes, there are certain elements of that that you could say are replicated now during what we have experienced both as a nation Uh, as a region and also globally over the last 18 months but I think the um, the one thing that you do see is the energy the drive the passion Mm. the enthusiasm the commitment there was a visionary people like Sir William Lyons and what their contribution to the motor industry was you know I mean what was the comment the um, Enzo Ferrari of all people made about the E-Type Jaguar the most beautiful car ever right. made. One of the most, yeah. And you think, right, well, that's high praise indeed from somebody who wasn't without a significant ego, uh, but nonetheless was very much um, race on Sunday, sell on Monday. And the E-Type, you've got to remember, um, was knocked out <laughs> in huge numbers. <laughs> it's not like those Ferraris. Mid-60s cars, um, a lot of them were handmade, weren't they, oh, the, the super sports cars? Yeah. And yet, when you look at the bargain, I mean, people not, not that often talk about this, and it's not a popular sort of, um, it's not a popular head-to-head in the classic car press, if such a thing exists anymore. That's changed a lot, hasn't it, in the, mm. in the last five years. Uh, they don't really put the DB5 and the E-Type together, but I do in my head, because of their iconic status... 
And yet, look at the price of a DB5 when it was new. And look how much they were giving away an E-Type yeah. for. They were giving it away. Yeah. There's never been a bargain like the Jaguar E-Type. Yeah. Never. Maybe that new Yaris. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. a manufacturer offers a car for sale or a bike. And it's just, you just think, what? There's, you know, there's got to be a catch. But then you talk to people, they go, no, no. Just, I, I remember when um, the first uh, generation uh, Subaru Impreza mm-hmm. uh, all-wheel drive road car, yeah. it was for nothing. And they sort of realised quickly, they went, oh, hold on, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then that's when they sort of, it all started, limited edition, special edition, Richard Burns replica, Colin McRae tribute, yeah, pro drive. Yeah, yeah. Because you've got so many units that you can yeah. that you can sell. Yeah. There are only a certain number of people out there that are interested in a homologation special rally car, a car that's been built specifically so that you can go, you can go racing. Yeah. And they realised that they were missing a trick in not maximising the profit on each car, didn't they? The first generation, they were like... There it is, and it's X amount. People went, boom, thank you. But yeah, yeah. like they said, oh, no, we've underpriced the car. Damn yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Quickly took care of that, though. Same with Lancia, with the... Uh, Stratos. And the O37 and the Integrale as well. So, I mean, Lancia's got a whole history of doing that. Ed, you are the most returning guest on Speed Shop, and you and I could literally talk all day. We're going to get you back because we've hardly talked to... We did actually for once, because Ed and I, as you probably listened to this, good mates, we, you know, um, lots of people come on Speed Shop. I've never met them. We've met via social media, on the internet. I've expressed an interest in what they do. I've reached out to them. They've come on the show. Some of them have been great guests. It's different. Ed's here. We're mates. It's different. So we're getting back in to talk about what we said we were going to talk about. But I just wanted to ask you... I just wanted to, to sort of finish by by talking about that and talking about um, enthusiasm. I went to a Toyota meeting by accident last Saturday. Okay. I was convinced, convinced, I was going to a celebration of the Ford Capri, the car you always promised yourself. Okay. And I frequently talk on this show about my beloved Star Miss Silver 3 litre S with the S decals on the side and the fishnet Recaros. Since you ask, BBS alloys, okay. slightly lowered, right. polished rims, gold centres. Okay. You're not telling me that in its time that wasn't a hell of a car. A hell of a car, my friend. So I thought, I'm going looking at Capris. I'm a happy boy. Right. I got there. It was Toyota's. I got my dates wrong. It was Toyota's, and it was Toy- not for the first time. Not listener. for the first. Not for the first time. I've got a bit of reputation. I, I'm easily distracted by shiny things. I'm like, oh, look a motorbike, and then I forget. It's like sort of a sort of Homer Simpson with a Berry accent, and um, and a quadrifoglio it, sticker. Indeed, it was um, it was Toyota's, but specifically, it was Toyota Celica's, and even more specifically, okay. It was the GT4. Oh, right. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I thought, hmm, the Toyota Celica GT4. Now, back in the day, the only on the only computer racing game I've ever played was the Rally One. Okay. And it would offer me an alternative. And the, the alternative it would offer me was the Lancia or the Toyota. And it was like I can't remember a single time going, Oh yeah, the Toyota. I don't want the Lancia I don't want the iconic Lancia Delta Integrale, one of which I've actually owned, Satan's Biscuit Tin, which often gets discussed on this on this show. What did I do with that car? Oh yeah. I should never saw that. Anyway, um always went for the Lancia. Because I'm a Lancia fancier. That's that's the deal. 
And so I thought, I'm not really interested in this. I'll go in there, I'll have a drink, and then I'm going to go. But I sort of started hanging around the cars and looking at them and thinking, oh, that's interesting. And then sort of started talking to the people, and then I thought, ah, oh, yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. These people are yeah. really into it. They yeah. know everything about yeah, these cars. Yeah. The cars are cracking on now. They're getting, like, 20-odd, yeah. 25-year-old, whatever, mid-90s cars. Yeah. So these lot have got to stick together because it's like the hive mind. Yeah. So between them, they all know, oh, you go and see so-and-so, he'll do that for you. Oh, I know somebody who's got a front grill and headlamps because, you know, you, you've had a bit of a bump, whatever, sure. get you back on the road. And I thought, it's exactly the same. It could be anything, this. It could be Vincent Motorcycles. It could be the highest end. It could be Ralph Lauren at Villa d'Este. Mm-hmm. Or it could be Cars and Coffee in, in Burnley or yep. something like that. Sorry. It yep. could be. It's the same thing. Same passion. The same passion. That's it for another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. If you want to listen to it again... Don't worry, there's always the podcast, or you can listen to it here on Fab. There's a repeat on Saturday. See you next week.